Fuck pain, fuck heartbreak. I'm still in love with life. From the multicultural headquarters of the future capital of the free-thinking states of America known as Los Angeles, this is the Drunken Dows Podcast. Tonight, it's interview time again as author, teacher, and Conan expert Robert Subiaga joins us for a conversation dealing with all things Conan the Barbarian, including riding with a giant shadow with an axe over your shoulder, the crazy wild passion for tasting everything in life, facing uncomfortable questions, naked elemental things of raw fire and molten lava, all while we wait for death to come crashing through the door. And now... Asking you all to spread the words that corporations are not persons, I'm Rich Evers. And my partner in crime, the savage philosopher and middle finger of the gods, Daniele Bolelli. As we invite you to lower the lights, batten down the hatches, and prepare to open your mind. For the Drunken Dows podcast begins now. Welcome back everybody, episode 53 of the Drunken Dows podcast. Another incredibly fun interview today. But worst, here's Daniele Bolelli. Today, my friend Robert Subiaga joined us to talk about... Conan. Conan! Now you'll know why my adolescent fantasies, and not just adolescence, my current mental state, Conan is the foundation of it all. Everything I learn about life, I learn from Conan. We'll find out why. So Robert is great because he knows so much about it. He has the right sensitivity to talk about these kind of issues in a way that's not just me Ted, 12 year old oh conan is cool because he chopped people's head off that's my job yeah <laughs> there's actually you know we're gonna have fun there's actually a lot of substance you may be surprised so let's go play with that but before we do a few quick thank you to the people who keep us in business so we have thank you so much to chris odell from datsusara datsusara puts out some of the greatest hemp gear you can find bags backpacks uh, geese uh, there's a whole range of hoodies there's a whole range of products that are amazing if you like hemp check out the website uh same thing on harder to categorize not just one thing it's a whole bazaar of stuff out there that include workout gear supplements special foods the whole range so thank you aubrey for helping us out and we got short design with Mr. Bennett. Soft shirts means happy nipples for a happy world. Indeed, man. Some of the greatest shirts on earth. And not only their shirts, which I strongly recommend you guys check. The I mean, even if you have seen bought from them before, they constantly have new designs, new stuff. It's it's amazing. I think Bennett has like a team of like 15 people he keeps chained in the basement somewhere weeping oh, them man. and having them come up with new um, he feeds them only lsd so they come up with some of the most creative wild designs out there <laughs> i don't know i hope there's no slavery involved now we know bennett is an awesome guy so on that note yeah check out short design check out on check out datsusara all the links are in the episode notes if you want discount from any of these products that would be sweet if you want some of our shirts um Dionysian Parade or the original Drunken Taoist logo. There's a link in the episode notes if you want to check them out and order them. And uh, what else? Anything else we need to do? That's it. I think Conan is calling. Let's go. 
by Crom. Now, there's no better time to grow up than the 70s, I don't think. For America, that was the last great moment to be a middle-class kid. I agree. I agree. It was all going. Our parents were all off doing all the drugs they could get their hands on, discoing <laughs> into the night, and didn't give a fuck about what we were doing. It was all like the ice storm. <laughs> you know, it's funny, though. I remember a lot of things from the 70s, and uh, I was likening some uh, hipsters to the, a leisure suit the other day, which is that... Uh, um, I still remember, you know, being a kid and leisure suits developed and uh, it was kind of like, well, we want to be rebels like the hippies were, but not so much it gets us in trouble and we lose our jobs. So how, how do we split the difference between wearing a three piece and uh, and and love beads? So let's develop the leisure suit because we can't shit or get off the pot. We, we, we kind of want the best of both. You know, It even went as far as the jumpsuit. Remember, there was a, yep. there was an attempt for the full on uh, Logan's run jumpsuit. It's funny how the best of both is a good concept. And if you do it right, it's awesome. And if you do it wrong, you're just an idiot. Yeah. The concept yeah. is OK, is how you do it. That's... Yeah. You know, uh, synthesizing is combining the best of both. But doing it improperly is contradiction at, at best and hypocrisy at worst. Yep. So, you know, you're kind of rolling the dice. Either you're the, you're the worst hypocrite or you're groundbreaking synthesis, you know, making synthesis. John yeah. Oliver said on his show the other night that um, red licorice and guacamole are awesome, but never meant to be together. <laughs> yeah, there's my examples are all culinary as well. Like I always think of like, you know, you grab uh, somebody in a distant past, grab noodles from China and tomatoes from the America and come out with Italian cuisine. And then somebody else come up with Alfredo sauce, which they should be shot for. You know, it's like just because you're mixing ingredients does not mean it's going to be good. Is there some way <laughs> we could actually paste the noodles to the plate yeah. and the arteries at the same time? Indeed. Not that my cholesterol is bad. <laughs> So, today, with us, Mr. Robert Subiaga. Is that how you pronounce your last name? Yes, Subiaga. it is. Cool. Very welcome to the Drunken Taoist. Oh, I, you know, glad to be here. Yeah. And today we're going to roll with... Today is going to be fun. In, the way I envisioned it, this was happening at midnight with roasted meats on a spitfire and red mm. wine pouring wildly. Mm. It's 11 a.m., so... But probably starting the red wine at 11 a.m. may not be the best of ideas. So, yeah, we're not exactly doing this way. But uh, why Conan? What uh, what do you like about it? I mean, in many ways, you know, the typical... Uh, the majority of people who ever hear of it usually hear it because of the movies. And, um, you know, there have been a lot of really bad movies. And then one glorious one by John Milius, the Conan the Barbarian, the 1982 version. But even the people who dig it, there's often that sneaker of, yeah, you know, when you're 12 and you are dreaming of being a powerful, manly man, you dream of Conan, but by the time you're 13, you should have grown up and, you know, come on, Conan, really? Yeah, this is where we're still over at. Switch Dolph Lundgren by then. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so why, why that's not the case for you? Well, you know, it's really interesting because I started out on Conan at that age. Mm-hmm. 
And some of that obviously appealed to me as, uh, you know, I started out as a kid and in the for a kid complex, um, but heroic world of like Marvel Comics. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Conan was in Marvel Comics. And then I go, well, give this a try. And as you're entering adolescence and you're entering kind of a, you know, a darker, more rebellious phase, you know, things get a little, uh, Conan seems to fit. Um, but I didn't know what I was getting into. Um, by the way, so sorry, I completely forgot in our introduction to explain, yes, movies, but Conan is primarily a literary character, which for those of you guys who don't know, and again, I'm assuming a lot of knowledge just because we're nerds, but you know, it's like in this case, Conan is primarily started out as a literary character. You want to give a tiny bit of background before we go back to you, why you dig it? Yeah, uh, Conan was one of the most famous characters, not actually the most written about, by, but the most famous by a pulp writer of fame, Robert E. Howard, of the 1930s, especially the 20s and 30s. And uh, um, so that's where it started out. Uh, there were a couple of resurgences. Howard uh, took his own life in 1936. And there were a couple of resurgences in print uh, over the years. And then in the 70s, uh, Conan really took off as a comic book character, and then then the films came out. Where did right. the Doc Savage stuff fall into that? Um, was that the '60s? No, Doc Savage. I think it was the '20s. Was it that really? started out? Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was kind of contemporaneous. So, so sorry so, for the interruption. <laughs> now we <laughs> we well, just no, had to no, give the background. To yes, everybody. exactly. And so you know, I started out uh, with Conan and writing in print mm -hmm. and the comics at the same time, and. As I said, I didn't know what I was getting into because part of it was exactly what you're saying, this kind of juvenile wish fulfillment element. But even at that age, I was into, you know, things that were a little more deeper and philosophical. I mean, I remember being age, might have been eight or nine, where I had an existential crisis. I mean, I remember talking to my uncle, and I didn't know the right terminology to put it into, but saying... I, I feel like I have an identity crisis. Like, literally, who am I? What does it mean to be? I'm looking at this hand, and, you know, it's like, why Why does it have this shape? You know, kind of this, what is reality? What am I really? So I was already into that phase. Um, Your parents didn't have a jar of sugar cubes you weren't supposed to touch or anything like <laughs> that. Uh, exactly no, what no. I was the, the worst part is, is this is all natural. So it's kind of, <laughs> it's fine, it too. happens on, on its own. Um <laughs> This hand, why? Wow. Five fingers. Yeah, why is there something rather than nothing? I mean, I was mushrooms, asking these sorts of questions. Why does the mirror reflect backwards? <laughs> you know, and I, I do blame Marvel Comics to some extent for this. Um, but so I, uh, so I'm reading this. I'm picking this up from Robert E. Howard as well. Now, as I'm young, junior high, high school age, I'm also then thinking that it's primarily the wish fulfillment fantasy end gobbling up reading reams of other fantasy and it took years of man almost all this stuff is is falling flat for me to and then years afterwards as well to develop the idea that wow there's underneath the surface of what appeals and probably does make this popular to most people there's something else here mm-hmm so, you know, people will look at other things that I've developed a taste for reading over time, you know, things like uh, 
uh, Latin American magic realism, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and go, how can you be into that and into Robert E. Howard at the same time? It's like, well, you, you don't get that there's something else going on here. Yeah, 100 Years <laughs> of Solitude is my favorite book of all time. And oddly enough, probably took me four reads to get through it. Like, abandoned, and this is crazy, and I have to have a diagram to follow this. But <laughs> when you finally fight through it, amazing. Yeah. Probably and one of the greatest and, opening lines ever. And such a romanticist in the sense of, you know, um, like even, and, and you see this as well, for example, more, most people would be more familiar with the film of Conan. Mm-hmm. It's brutal and it's bloody, and yet it's a tearjerker when you're seeing Valeria getting the Viking burial, the, the sure. relation. I mean, you know, I'm sitting here watching this. Even to this day, I'll watch this. And as Subutai is saying, you know, it's like, I cry for him because he won't cry. I still tear up. He's calling on the Cimmerian. You know, I'll cry for him because he won't cry. Yeah. You know, there is a, there is this, and so, uh, like with Marquez, things like uh, um, of love and other demons or uh, um, love in the time of cholera. What I see and feel is kind of lacking in American literature is a romanticism that's virile, and. You know, I, I think they're from more of the end of the virility, <laughs> but you you have the same thing in Robert E. Howard. Did you read him in Spanish? Uh, Marquez? No. Okay. No. I, I, I just, I've always wondered if the translation killed it. Somehow it's still, the ones it's still I, amazing. The ones I've done, yeah, they're still, still amazing. So. But that, yeah, speaking of mixing, well, since that's where we started, yeah, the whole notion of somebody who read that, Marquez, and then read Conan, exactly. In the mind of most people, you would be like, but, but. But how oh, you know it's like one is cultured and uh, refined and more and the other is like come on it's this trashy comic book stuff how can you possibly like both how can you possibly see connections in both you know it's like mm-hmm. one is the one that you should be ashamed of that you put inside the newspaper to read the conan <laughs> thing and the other one is proper literature why do you feel that that's bullshit well it's looking beyond the stereotype mm-hmm. and i think part of the biggest reason for the bullshit is there you know, Robert E. Howard, the originator, the writer, um, he was writing for a popular audience. So he was gearing this commercially, but he as a person was uh, at times very troubled, but also an incredibly deep thinker. You know, my my own kind of making my living as an educator and gifted education, mm-hmm. especially. But especially um, what I've developed over the years is the, the effective nature of it, the emotional, the psychological element of what people who are unusually gifted go through. And it is clear to me, I mean, he's an amazing case study of this guy trapped in a small town, um, misunderstood, but somebody of very high sensitivities, very high intellect, but also forced to deal with and moderate, you know, in a culture that doesn't necessarily value that. And in ways very tortured and bad because of it, but also ways good because then he had to look for and appreciate where he could, you know, the working class, the frontier, the 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 mentality of the common person or, you know, uh, as well. So it's, um, so he is, as a thinker, was always struggling with that. And I think that was, you know, he took his own life in 1936. I think one of the problems that he had, everybody focuses on his relationship with his mother, et cetera, and that was a, a big part of it. But his biggest part, I, I look at the, his writings, his letters, 
was his career. He wanted his career to take off in certain directions and not be beholden to the commercial. In the commercial itself, he was successful, but things were kind of petering out and he wasn't being paid on time and, and it was the depression and all these other, other things. So what do you do? Um, you know, we see this in other writers. Philip K. Dick never wanted to be a science fiction writer. He was doing that to pay the bills. But once you get trapped yeah. doing that, when's the label and that's kicks all people in, look at you for. They want you yeah. for, right. I remember hearing not too long ago um, Graham Hancock saying how, you know, he sold five million copies of uh, Fingerprints of the Gods. He wants to do fiction. Nobody wants to publish his books. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, are you kidding? Well, you're a nonfiction writer. Give us more of the same. And you're like, are you fucking kidding me? You know, the man sold five million copies and he has to beg for some small. It's like, it's crazy. But yeah, on that note, speaking of, did you hear the whole legend about uh, Howard and Conan, the whole story that supposedly he saw as he was there <laughs> typing away? He saw this giant shadow next to him with an axe telling him that he had to write. That was his mother. And, yeah, probably. <laughs> 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 and uh, <laughs> that he he would ride through the night with this ghost of this barbarian next to him that would disappear once the sun would come out and mm-hmm. then but he would have to be ready because he knew that by the time darkness would kick in again conan would be back with tax by his side forcing him to write <laughs> well you know it's funny too because howard himself um just barely but all but almost at all times mythologized when he talked about himself in his letters right. and the way he interacted with people. Um, and so, you know, I was just recently, every year they have a Robert E. Howard days now in Cross Plains. The town has come around to really appreciate him. And some of the scholars out there that have really dug into and have multiple copies of all his drafts and things he wrote and rewrote and adjusted over the years go, yeah, yeah, he, he put a lot of work into it. And he was, you know, it just sounds so much better <laughs> to say this suddenly flowed and right. he was right there and uh, and and so on but uh, a little bit of where that boundary comes in with uh, with life and fiction and uh, it's um, more interesting when you walk right on that boundary it's, yeah. life is much more fun that way yeah there's uh, one thing about this um, this episode that came to my mind um, i was I was on the plane and I was rereading a Conan book for the 50th time and I was having a blast, right? I was like, my eyes would just lighten up and I would just get so into it and I would just throw quotes here and there. And uh, wonderful Savannah M, the Buddha with the D-cups, my own personal Zen master, the moon goddess, the chocolate Robin Hood, Nutella flavored love, MacGyver of weed. All of that, yes. Who is, by the way, the artist who did our uh, Dionysian Parade t-shirt, and she's the woman who's chopping off Buddha's head off in that particular <laughs> t-shirt. She asked me the the tough question. She asked me, what is about the Conan books? You know, she wanted to read them. She hadn't checked them out yet. She asked, what is that you like so much that you are so... Why do your, lights, do your eyes lighten up when you talk about them and all of that? And I started answering... And three words in, that wasn't what I wanted to say. And then I tried another one, and uh, that's not working either. And I kept struggling with words to find just the right exact thing to do. And I'm like, yeah, none of those capture why I dig him so much. So as I was struggling with words, I decided I just grabbed her, passionately kissed her with epic passion for the next (laughs) five minutes, and then said, that's why. 
you know that's exactly why i i dig conan this is the feeling so i will try to restrain myself and i will try not to kiss robert or rich in the next hour <laughs> or so that we talk about this i definitely it's a goodwill effort i make no promises but that's the where we're at it's gonna be one of those days yeah so on that, well, that might note, be a good time to uh you know read a, a little quote from uh, queen of the black coast that i think you're familiar ah, with one of the greatest stories of all times yes <laughs> please queen of the black coast well uh conan has uh been on a, on a ship that's been taken over by pirates um and they're led by this uh woman Bele, mm -hmm. who is uh you know she's the the, the so-called queen of this but she's a warrior woman and uh, she's taking Conan as her lover, and they're, they're kind of captaining the ship together. And at one point, she's asking him, you know, and this is one of those things where it's like, wait, you know, Howard's not philosophical. This is just all wish fulfillment and adventure. And unfortunately, this, this only the last part of this quote was used in the most recent Conan movie, and it just killed me because the whole quote is what is necessary. So she asks uh, Conan, Bele does, what of your own gods? I've never heard you call on them. And he goes, their chief is Krom. He dwells on a great mountain. What use to call on him? Little he cares if men live or die. Better be silent than to call his attention to you. He'll send you dooms, not fortune. He's grim and loveless, but at birth he breathes power to strive and slay into a man's soul. What else shall men ask of the gods? What the hell shall men ask of the gods? <laughs> That's beautiful right now. And there. she says, but what of the worlds beyond the river of death? There is no hope here or hereafter in the cult of my people, answered Conan. In this world, men struggle and suffer vainly, finding pleasure only in the bright madness of battle. Dying, their souls enter a gray, misty realm of clouds and icy winds to wander cheerlessly throughout eternity. Belay shuddered. Life, bad as it is, is better than such a destiny. What do you believe, Conan? He shrugged his shoulders. And this is interesting, too, because a lot of people, you know, will focus, oh, the Sumerians, the Sumerians, Conan... No, you know, he doesn't live in Samaria. He knows his people. He has remnants of his people, but he's also breaking with his people to become an adventurer, you know. Uh, so it's kind of interesting in that regard. He goes, uh, he, he shrugged his shoulders. I have known many gods. He who denies them is as blind as he who trusts them too deeply. I seek not beyond death. It may be the blackness averred by the Nemedian skeptics, or Krom's realm of ice and cloud, or the snowy hills and plains and vaulted halls of the Nordheimer's Valhalla. I know not, nor do I care. Let me live deep while I live. Let me know the rich juices of red meat and stinging wine on my palate, the hot embrace of white arms, the mad exaltation of battle, when the blue blades flame and crimson, and I am content. Let teachers and priests and philosophers brood over questions of reality and illusion. I know this. If life is illusion, then I am no less an illusion. And being thus, the illusion is real to me. I live. I burn with life. I love. I slay. And I am content. Ah, my God. <laughs> I use this exact quote in a chapter three four in um, create your own religion when i start the chapter discussing the existence of god and the afterlife and all of that it starts exactly with the, i've known many gods he would deny them and the whole thing is like mm -hmm. i mean that line right there let me live deep while i live so simple yeah Few to words. me to me conan is an existential warrior and you know 
and a lover as well, existential mm-hmm. lover and warrior. And so, you know, with emphasis on the warrior. And so getting back to, you know, what do I, similarity do I see in Marquez? What similarity do I see in a, a wide range of other authors that suddenly go, oh, that seems so totally antithetical to Conan because they are existential lovers and warriors. Yep. The emphasis may be a little more on the sensual or the loving, maybe more on the on the, the warrior aspect, but they are vibrant existentialists. And mm-hmm. here's what's kind of funny is that getting to other things we've talked about in the past, Nietzsche. Um, now, you know, Nietzsche is often mischaracterized because people think of existentialism as this nihilism. It's, it's, right. it's like, you oh, there's nothing. no point and, and so on. And uh, Yeah, like he, the whole notion of Nietzsche being pessimist, which is like, are you, did you fucking read the guy? It's like, what are you talking about? Exactly. It's about embracing life. And a lot of the great existential writers that I still think are great, nevertheless, you know, aren't vibrant and even Nietzsche himself in his own personal life would have benefited from allowing himself some mm-hmm. of what he proposed in terms of letting himself love and be vibrant and so on. And that's why, sorry, not to go back to the Dionysian parade, but in this case it fits. That's why in our version of Nietzsche and the Dionysian parade, there's He's a Nietzsche surfer <laughs> with a surfboard and a bottle of wine. And, you and know. I even see this with Howard too. You know, you look at his biography, his life, um, you know, where he would have benefited from it. But he was on the boundary of it in, in personal life and with his characters. You know, the way nihilism fits in is that the universe itself, not necessarily is, but, you know, certainly might be, and you can never tell, pointless and nihilistic. So the question is, are you going to then be a petulant little child, which still means hoping that somebody will come you know, save you and give life meaning. Almost like if you pout long enough, mm-hmm. God will poke, poke his head out and say, oh, sorry, I'm sorry I made you suffer so much. I'm really here. See, I'm right here. Or maybe if you rebel in such a way that he'll slap you down. Well, at least I know he's there now. Where, you know, if you honestly think that things might, very well might be pointless, well, then you might as well embrace life as it is and and literally embrace it while you can let me live deep while i live mm-hmm. that should be the battle cry you know that should be and again i like that because it's unlike other quotes that are warrior fight even the other one that i love like the at the end of the passage when it goes i live i burn with life i love i slay and i'm content mm-hmm. you know there's more of the warrior field i slay and all of that let me live deep while I live. It's not even being specific. It's not about warfare, like much of the Conan stories are about, you know, fighting and blood and this. It's not about, it's about living deep, however you want to define it, however, whatever body you want to throw in there that characterize the living deep. That's what to me is all about. It's about that crazy, wild passion for tasting every second in life. And And uh, thinking, you know, thinking is part of it too. It's almost a, a little bit of a, um, he's being honest when he says that, you know, let the skeptics think this, mm-hmm. let the, these people think this, but you know, this is Conan of gigantic melancholies and gigantic mirth. He broods on these things. He is a philosopher, Cull, you know, some Conan-like characters, very philosophical. And yet in that way, that comes back around to kind of existentialism, which is that I think about these metaphysical things. I ponder them, but at the same time, I realize in the end, this is, not going to get anywhere and i've said this for years i go well 
let's just say for some reason, you know, the sky opened up and God came out and said, hey, I'm really here and here's heaven and you die and you go there. How do you know this thing won't just last for a trillion years and then you'll end up in non-existence, you know? How do you know, oh, I'm omnipotent. Well, how do you know? I, you know, I mean, how do you know this is not some super powerful space alien and eventually you're still going to have to face this or people who are, you know, too blithely optimistic in science fiction. Oh, we'll download our consciousness to machine after machine and live forever. Well, what happens when the, when the, the thing you downloaded to gets crushed before it can download? You know, <laughs> it's you can't escape the very strong possibility that it's still it, it, it's it's not like you ignore these things and a lot of howard's protagonists delve into thinking about them at times and brooding about them and yet realize i still have to face mm -hmm. these existential verities no matter how clever i get or how dig I, how deep i dig and that's to me is like the next step in human evolution is nietzsche with a surfboard is that deep existential you know in some way even you know, when I was a kid, and I remember being fascinated with the figure of the damned poets, the the one, the suffering, brooding, <laughs> the very deep, very passionate, you know, everything they do, they do it with their own blood. There's everything, but also usually would be suffering negative, ultimately, you know, shunned by the world. There's always this sense of being at odds with the universe, which I understand, but the next step is to turn that sensibility that amazing sensibility that somebody like that has rather than turning it into the i am the black sheep <laughs> who only i understand the depth of the universe where the shallow people the superficial ones are having a good time is more instead that ability of going through insane depths and find the ability to enjoy the silliest most mundane aspect of everyday life yeah you go, and... you go deeper down the rabbit hole. And here's the funny thing about that that type of wallowing nonstop and brooding the dark mm -hmm. sort of thing. Underneath, it's not authentic in saying that things are hopeless. It's, it's, it's hoping that someone will jump out of the blue, whether it's a person right. that will be your great love or a god or whatever, and rescue you, seeing how much you're suffering. And Camus was great with this. Um, you know, he had the great book, uh, The Myth of Sisyphus, about the issue of mm -hmm. suicide, you know. And, you know, Camus himself, I thought this was great. He carried around, a, uh, according to the story, a bullet in his pocket. Because he all, it was always to remind himself, this is really maybe the only freedom I have is to end my existence. But if I have that freedom, there's, there's no more a necessity to do it than to not. And I have that freedom to wait till tomorrow if I damn well please. And so the irony is that when you really stare into the abyss of hopelessness, you don't pout because you realize there is no salvation. Nobody is going to come save you for pouting. And so you do what you do. If it's, if it's a case of the pain or the suffering, say you have a terminal illness, you know, you might easily say, okay, now is the time. I'm going to give up. And that's your freedom and choice. But you're not going to, you know, necessarily at all do it before. If you're genuinely hopeless, well, what difference does it make? I might as well stick around. I might as well embrace. Because why not? Not, ask, not asking why. Ask why not. 
You'd sure be upset to miss the meteor strike <laughs> by six hours. What? What? You know, get swiping your card in in, in uh, purgatory, getting ready for your you know extra fifteen thousand years of shuffling papers and shit just to watch the meteor come in that you could have been front row for. <laughs> the disappointment would be amazing. I love the idea that you put forward that. Everybody should taste lots of books mm -hmm. because is there anybody in this world worse than the fellow that only believes in one good book, whatever flavor that might right. be? Those are the ones that are entrenched and cause misery. Mm -hmm. yeah. People that are wanting to try different things, try everything. That's yeah, what we're here for, isn't it? A big asking of, of what if, you know? Why, questions like why not? Questions like what if, you know? Um, but they're very, they're very threatening to people, you know, because... Hey, even most people who go around and would be nodding at what I just said, actually all of us to some degree, but certainly a lot of people would quickly nod at what I just said. Oh, yeah, you know, that's exactly what they, my enemies, don't do. <laughs> and don't, don't look at the fact that, you know, you're doing the same thing too. <laughs> and speaking of, uh, well, beside the fact that yes, so the, the, it's all about Nietzsche on the surfboard. That to me is like, I want it as a tattoo pretty much because that captures to me exactly that paradox of one extreme and the other combined in a perfect, Nietzsche with the surfboard is the perfect Tao. He's in and yang right there flowing beautifully with each other. But beside that, one thing you mentioned about the whole salvation issue, symbolically there's one that I can never get it off. There's a, it's part of a story, a Howard story called The Witch Shall Be Born. And this part of um, Milius used it in uh, Conan the Barbarian. He picked, because, you know, Conan the Barbarian was not based on a Howard story. Milius picked from a bunch of Howard story, mixed some elements, wrote his own idea of Conan. So that's Milius Conan, which in my mind, every filmmaker, nobody's going to do exactly what the book is. If you want that, read the damn book, don't watch a movie, because that's, you know, anytime you adapt something, you're going to change it, and that's fine. The problem is how you change it. Mm -hmm. You can change it in a glorious way, or you can change it in a crappy way. Lord of the Rings, I dig it because I found that Peter Jackson, I thought he changed it in a glorious way. I, I love the book, and I love the movie. Different, but amazing. With Conan the Barbarian, same story, the Milius movie, was n none of it is uh, exactly how Howard would have done it. It's uh, Milius channeling his own inner Howard and playing with it in a beautiful way. But the one scene that was found in the story of which shall be born, the crucifixion scene, mm -hmm. the scene where, it was funny because I was walking just a few days ago, I was walking in Italy and there, you know, churches everywhere, sculptures everywhere. Sorry, I'm going to go on a tiny bit of a tangent. Beside the fact that I saw some of the most disturbing sculptures of all time, so I posted them on Twitter, like, just down the street I see this freaking sculpture of a priest, and underneath there's a boy kneeling with head right at crotch <laughs> level, and I was like, what the fuck is this? The you training know, I academy. Like, I know, I was like, and then I saw another one where there was a bunch of, like, um, kind of little angels figure, like, you know when they make them sort of infantile, like they are five-year-old kids, mm -hmm. and there's, like, there's three of them locked in, like, a chain of, it look like they are giving oral to each other, even though oh, technically they're just playing, and you're like, again, what? But in any case, sorry, that was my disturb moments when I was like watching <laughs> some of this culture and being very disturbed but back to the point uh, where am I going with this crucifixion of course you see a million crucifixion sculptures everywhere where you go in Italy with churches all over the place and so many of them while philosophically I can even understand and even find some 
something cool about the whole Christian idea of uh, you know somebody who accepts pain onto themselves for the sake of giving to everybody else. There's something beautiful about that, and I dig it. The way is often per set up as a symbol. It's nasty. It's this image that's all about kind of like, uh, you know, there's this sense of suffering, not exactly noble suffering. Again, I'm purely talking about the way it's done in sculptures. It looks, poor Jesus, who, you know, assuming he existed, maybe he was an awesome human being, they make him look whiny and weak yes. in a way that's somewhat annoying. And, um, and when you compare the traditional representation of the crucifixion of these, you know, anybody who watch one of the sculptures, you feel like you just want to weep yourself and feel like, ooh, that is so bad and terrible. And the Conan crucifixion, both <laughs> in the movie and in uh, the book, there's that thing where he's just nailed to a tree, left there to die. Uh, vulture starts swirling down and Conan at one point is passing out because he's so weakened by the whole thing. And he wakes up with this, uh, the beak of this uh, vulture that's digging into his chest. And you see Kara just open his eyes, realize what's going on. And the next thing he just bite the shit out of the neck of this vulture. You know, his hands and feet are nailed. He can't <laughs> move. He just uses a movement of his neck to just snap the vulture's neck, biting him. Mm -hmm. Beside the juvenile happiness of that scene, it's beautiful. It's yeah. just, there's something about, you know, you put somebody in the worst possible imaginable situation and there's no hope of getting through alive. I mean, only thanks to the magic of Howard and Milius mm -hmm. will Conan be rescued by a situation that's by all means hopeless. But there's still that, I'm not dead yet, motherfucker. And yeah. until I am done, well, watch out. And it's interesting, you know, not the movie, because um, that came out when I was in, in high school, but the, the story itself, when I read it, I was in junior high and... You know, at that time, I was uh, both asking really challenging questions. You know, I was I was very much into, you know, the, the family religious scene and going through confirmation class and all these things. And I was like one of those top students, but also the one that would, you know, drive people up the up the wall with it. Well, what if what if we had a time machine and went back and found out Jesus never, it's you know, never rose from the dead. It's like, shut up. You know, it's like you're the top student, but shut up. You, know? you mean they didn't want to talk about the Inquisition to you? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I was I was kind of more focused on the metaphysical sort of things, but yeah, you know, it's like uncomfortable questions. And how do we know that it wasn't just a super powerful space alien talking to Moses that it was God? You know, <laughs> these kinds of things. Yeah. And so, <laughs> down. it's really yeah, really inconvenient <laughs> when it's also supposed to be your you know top student in class that you're holding up like you. Why don't you guys like him? Well, sorry, I didn't mean that. Um, but so. You know, I'm reading a witch, a witch shall be born, and you know when you talk about Christianity and and I think there's powerful mytho poetry in there that often isn't expressed, especially in the existential sense. So first of all, you know, let's maybe throw out the, the even the resurrection and any relevance of it or whatever things like that. I I was getting into something that that a couple of years later, um, when I was in high school or early college, I think it was. And I'm reading, if you're familiar with the book by Harold Kushner, the rabbi, uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And it deals with the, the, the uh, theodicy question, the question of evil. Right. You know, how can this be an all-loving God and whatever? And, you know, rabbi, he's Jewish, but he comes out with something that resonated with the Christian myth of poetry to me, which is that, you know, let's throw out this 
idea we have of, you know, even from a Jewish perspective, hey, scripture never says God is totally omnipotent. What if he did the best job he could and simply feels for us, suffers with us through this existential crisis? And so, you know, in a Christian myth of poetry would be, you know, and it, for those who would ascribe to an incarnation, it would be, you know, how can, you know, it, it's really a question of atoning to humans by saying, I'm going to go through this. In fact, I don't even know half the time I know I'm God, but how do I really know I'm God? And when I'm sitting here on this cross and facing the abyss, facing death and reaffirming life, I'm going to go down the rabbit hole all the way with you. And so I'm sitting here going, that is challenging. It challenges Orthodox Christian doctrine across all the board. Right. You know, because again, I'm thinking about other things like, who gives a fuck whether there was a resurrection? Then? You know, things like that. And even on a, on a metaphorical, mythopoetic level, um, you know, that it has a lot of power. But it, it violates all these sorts of things. And it, it's no longer a wimpy <laughs> right. version right, right, right. of Jesus. You know? right. And so I think at times, too, besides the influence of Kushner's book and a lot of other things, here is Conan I mean, mm -hmm. reading about how he faces that crucifixion. Yeah. And I think that was part of the inspiration of me going, yeah, yeah, you know, it's like uh, not, the, not a wimpy Jesus, not a passive, you know, sort of uh, moralistic Jesus, and also not the... The, the warrior Jesus of Revelation saying, I'm going to come in and right. know, wipe out all this shit, but an existential warrior. Yep. <laughs> you know? Somebody he, to enjoy the genocides with. <laughs> I'm more yeah. of a buddy Jesus that you can eat popcorn and watch the bad news roll in. I used to love Lenny Bruce's, one of his famous lines is, uh, if Jesus was killed these days, would all the Christians wear electric chairs? Oh, yeah. Of yeah. course. Right. Of course, these days, would they and wear Bill like Hicks, 37 you know? needles that don't work? Right. Bill Hicks used to talk about, too, it's like, you know, so uh, you know, people wearing crosses around their necks. You think when Jesus comes back, he wants to see a cross? <laughs> He's like, you know, isn't that isn't like that going up to Jackie Kennedy with a sniper rifle around your neck going, just thinking of John, you know? It's... Yeah, that's pretty funny. Bill Hicks was funny, man. Yeah, there's that... Um... That whole, in the face of death and hopelessness, Conan, metaphorically speaking, because he's nailed to a cross, so there's nothing to grab because his hands are tied, but there's very much a grab his crotch, hold the sword, uh, hold on to a jug of red wine. There's <laughs> that, you know, to put it in uh, terms that you guys may be familiar with since we have been saying it over and over, there's that element of that defiant smile and raise middle finger to Conan that resonates with me quite a bit is it somewhat juvenile yes and as we said before juvenile and proud <laughs> right there's something about it that just lively there's energy there's uh, i live deep while i live there's yeah. all of that so yeah hard not to dig that stuff did the pushing of the wheel for a decade is that from the books too or is that no no, no that actually that's you know Milius. yeah that's milius and and it fit you know in the sense of milius is kind of this zen anarchist you know it's like uh uh sort of thing so you know you have the metaphor for the wheel of existence and then milius was more than howard in the sense of um you know, this working your way up to be strong kind of thing. It's the same with like Conan when he's being trained by the martial arts master and thing. Howard himself was uh, was much too individualistic for that. And so, you know, his Conan, 
if he was ever caught and enslaved, he would have escaped. And then he may have been caught again at a later point and enslaved, you know. It, but it wasn't, he, he, a little different character. He would have never tolerated um, being in that state for his whole childhood, right. you know. Definitely, no, that's one of the big differences there, but... Is there, I actually is, skip over that part of the movie. Right. <laughs> is there a battle at all between the book lovers and the comic lovers? Because there's got to be stories at that times. diverged for sure. Well, you know... But that artwork seemed to be some of the best, especially like... I guess I think the stuff I saw from the 60s. Mm-hmm. They really... You're thinking like the Frank Frazetta paintings? Yes, yes, Yeah, yes. those were the ones that he used uh, for the covers a lot. Mm-hmm. They're beautiful, man. Those yeah. are uh, those are glorious. I tried once to uh, call the Frank Frazetta Foundation to set up. It's like, why in the world do you guys not have T-shirts? Because it's you know some of those paintings are amazing. They mm-hmm. would be amazing T-shirts. And I never got it off the ground. They were you know we went back and forth. There was nothing to it. Those would be if somebody out there want to make Conan T-shirts. You may have to fight it out with the Frank Frazetta Foundation, but they are glorious, man. Mm-hmm. Some of those are just beautiful. Nothing Benedict sure design would be afraid of. Yeah, no, well, <laughs> I asked him. He was slightly scared by the fact that there's, like, the complexity of the image is insane. Yeah. So to be able to render it on T-shirt, it's tough. It's definitely, there are also technical difficulties beside copyright issues, but... Uh, but yeah, man, some of those, uh, the graphics of some of that stuff is amazing. I, I saw magnetic paint on a car the other day where the car literally shifts colors just by dialing a dial. Oh, oh come on. So if we can do that, we'll That's weave that into your crazy. shirt and your, your, your difficult images won't be so difficult anymore. Let's do that. Now, <laughs> back to uh, Queen of the Black Coast, which mm-hmm. uh, another quote from it, which this, by the way, will explain why we have relatively few female listeners. And, uh, you know... <laughs> I remember I put it on Facebook once, and I think that that's exactly, it didn't dawn on me until I, after I put the quote on Facebook, which, by the way, I just put out also a public page on Facebook. So if you guys are like, I don't want to be friend if I don't know you, whatever, there's a Daniele Bolelli public page. So if you guys want to check it out, I'll post uh, things from time to time. One thing that I had posted at some point uh, in my own private page was this quote from Queen of the Black Coast, and I... My tag there was saying, everything I know about love, I've learned from Conan. And <laughs> this quote is it. And the next day, my dad was like, you know that that's why you have no female listeners, right? <laughs> it's like the fact that you would say that, that right there. I'm like, but why? It's beautiful in any case. This is actually spoken by Belit, the female pirate of Queen of the Black Coast. And uh, she says... Um, there is life beyond that, I know. And I know this too, Conan. She rose lightly to her knees and caught him in a panterish embrace. My love is stronger than any death. I've lain in your arms, panting with the violence of our love. You have held and crushed and conquered me, drawing my soul to your lips with the fierceness of your bruising kisses. My heart is welded to your heart. My soul is part of your soul. Were I still in death and you fighting for your life, I would come back to the abyss to aid you. Hi, whether my spirit floated with the purple sails on the crystal sea of paradise, or writhed in the molten flames of hell, I am yours, and all the gods and all their terrible eternities shall not severe us. Actually, there was no terrible, I threw it in there for some random reason. God damn, is that like the most beautiful love quote I've ever read? Or 
well, we're not sure, you know, as, as Howard does with a lot of metaphysical things with reincarnation, other stuff, you know, did it really happen? Did it not happen? But, you know, certainly hints that maybe it happened where she does come back from yep. the other side. And of course, that is utilized in the movie with Valeria. Precisely. Um, Speaking of moving people. moments, like mm -hmm. I watch that and I cry. And again, that's because I'm a juvenile idiot. But well, that's, you know, I wouldn't most... say that. And I wouldn't even say that that is a barrier at all to female appreciation because I know a lot of women who really resonate with that. I think here's an irony is I think that the reputation and some of the things, but reputation more than anything, of Conan has been a barrier because of what people associate with it. And ironically, what what has happened in the last couple decades, um, you know, Robert E. Howard in his life had a uh, tumultuous love affair with a woman named Novelin Price, who was a school teacher. And, you know, Howard, after he took his own life, in this mythology, and he played into this as well uh, during his life. But you know, afterwards, it's so easy to come up with this really, really, really great artist, but insane. You know, of course, mm -hmm. oh, this—he was mentally ill. He had this Oedipus complex. Blah blah blah, because that's kind of a common thing for people to do. And uh, for years, Novelin had her old journals, and you know things about Bob and she had actually done a radio play which I've I've heard um, or a play which I've heard as a radio play um, which is called uh, um, let's see Day of the Stranger I, yeah Day of the Stranger which is just heartrending about thinking that she you know this woman thinks she's been visited by this guy you know in Bob's case he died of, of suicide but somebody who had, who had died in the war in World War II and regretting and you know, wishing she could speak to him one more day and you know the way the character comes off as a characterization is heartrending and so she came out with her memoirs uh the one one who walked alone and this was made a new movie with renee zellweger and vincent d'onofrio as robert e howard and it is one of the most beautiful heartrending when i when i we I mean, talk about an american version of a gabriel garcia marquez story mm -hmm. here we have this and, you know, when I've showed this to women, they I know all sorts that, wow, you know, I've got to give Robert E. Howard a try. Because suddenly the stereotype of even his fiction, what it's all about now is in this larger context. And, you know, um, as I said, there is a, a, a lover, a romanticism, existential warrior and lover in that because of the rep. And not even of all his stories as a whole. He has humor in his boxing stories. He has all sorts of things. But the rep of just a particular slice of his stories that made his fame also was a double-edged sword. Of course. No pun intended. And, you know, when you get beyond that, it's like, wow, this deserves a, 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 another look. Yeah, I mean, that right there, that quote. I mean, I say joking, but not really. To me, that is the most beautiful love uh, poem if you will that i can think of like that right there and there's a follow-up to that in fact afterwards after the whole i'm yours and all the gods and their eternities shall not severe us there's a moment where like in the movie there's a or is she real is she a spirit what is it that reappears mm -hmm. and in the um, in the um, short story written by howard um, you kind of get that feeling in the movie but it's ex written in the short story there's Conan looking into her eyes and seeing, and the way our describe it is sort of her love or passion that is what helps her come back in that moment. And it is, uh, our describe it as a naked elemental thing 
of raw fire and molten lava. Mm-hmm. To me, if your ability to love is not a naked elemental thing of raw fire and molten lava, then I don't know what the fuck you're... I <laughs> is that, to me, that's love. Everything else, whatever. It's yeah. entertainment. It's not... Fuck, I, I can't get enough of this, you know? It's like a naked elemental thing of raw fire and molten lava. They're just so beautiful. I don't know what to say. And that's at the point where I usually have to kiss somebody, but luckily there's a table separated us, so it's not going to happen. Uh, on that note, the, <laughs> um, oh, let me throw out just another, this is unrelated, but another pretty cool quote from uh, Queen of the Black Coast. There's a moment where things have not gone well for Conan, and he's not in a particularly good mood at this point in the story. And uh, here we go. He says, now he sat grimly on the pyramid, waiting for his unseen foes. The black fury in his soul drove out all fear. What shapes would emerge from the blackness, he knew not, nor did he care. There's that dark, powerful, fuck you, I'm, you know, there's an element there of just in a way craving battle because it's the only thing that can silence the pain he's going through at that moment and that's the one thing that he's not afraid of now he's a god in fighting there's nothing it's a, it's something really interesting there because the paradox of a, of a fight and a resignation mm-hmm. at the same time you know it's it seems contradictory but it's a synthesis and a paradox you know that resigned to the fate of the world that this is a hopeless quest and yet a defiant fight well because part of it also is he can never lose a fight mm-hmm. he can win and beat all his enemies and for all this amazing power that he has which is above all other mortals in a way he cannot get the one thing he wants at this point exactly. there are you know there are things he can turn back time he can't go back to and that's that element of this insane amount of power and that this deep sadness that go hand in hand in it I think we touched on it in a very old Drunken Taoist episode. It was called The Dark Journey, where we were talking about uh, Legends of the Fall. That, to me, is Legends of the Fall right there. Exactly. And, you know, the, the first thing that uh, it, it resonates with me, I almost hate to bring it up because it's been so, you know, bastardized and overused, but, you know, the simple, uh, you know, Lakota sentiment, mm-hmm. today is a good day to die. Yep. And, you know, it's it's so as i said it's at worst bastardized but at least even at its best it's usually not felt or thought of in the depth that you just talked about with this scene you know um it's trivialized in in many many different ways and of course with its overuse it is but there it is right there yeah you know and uh, the paradox of fight and resignation Mm -hmm. That's the kind of darker existential aspect of it all. Still fight. It's still yeah. not a completely resigned one, but it's definitely... Yeah, it's almost like... Well, and here's what's interesting, too. It's resigned to the nature of cosmic-level reality. Right. And not even necessarily looking at it as hopeless or pointless in the way that we, from a mm-hmm. human perspective, would. But it's that, you know, we strive in the in the short term, in the short term, to, to, to use a Taoist analogy, that the yin force, the directional force, the history has a direction from our perspective of from this to this and possibly right. possible improvement. And yet 
you know, uh, on a cosmic level, whether we're talking about, uh, um, you know, say a certain Native American cosmology mm-hmm. or a Hindu cosmology, the great wheel spins and it's, it's a dynamic equilibrium so that on the small scale, it's directional, but on the large scale, it's an equilibrium. Right. Very philosophical of you. <laughs> well, you know, and, and Howard himself um, was influenced and yet he jettisoned the kind of the esoteric and occult BS mm-hmm. that he found and he was very down to earth. But he was influenced by theosophy, which in turn was influenced by Schopenhauer and by Hinduism. Oh, yeah, of so course. you know, again, people will say, Oh, Howard wasn't wasn't a, a philosopher of any depth and he wasn't intellectual. It's like it's a load of bull. It is. It completely is. It's on uh, just to show a more humorous aspect, still from the same story, and then I swear I stopped quoting from that particular one, we'll jump into some other one. There's one that pretty much sums up my relationship with the law that's perfectly expressed in the beginning of Queen of the Black Coast. Here is Conan speaking. Well, last night in a tavern, a captain in the King's Guard offered violence to the sweetheart of a young soldier, who naturally ran him through. But it seems that there is some cursed law against killing guardsmen, and the boy and, the, and his girl fled away. It was bruited about that I was seen with them, and so today I was hauled into court, and the judge asked me where the lad had gone. I replied that since he was a friend of mine, I could not betray him. Then the court waxed wrath, and the judge talked a great deal about my duty to the state and society and other things I did not understand, and, ma- and bade me to tell where my friend had flown. By this time I was becoming wrathful myself, for I had already explained my position. But I choked my ire and held my peace, and the judge squalled that I had a shown contempt for the court and that I should be hurled into a dungeon to rot until I betrayed my friend. So then, seeing they were all mad, I drew my sword and cleft the judge's skull. Then I cut my way out of the court, and seeing the high constable stallion tied nearby, I rode for the wharves, where I thought to find a sheep bound for foreign parts. <laughs> foreign parts, actually. The what's wrong with handling the law in such a way this there's a perfect actual morality in this there's a very clear sense of morality in conan just a slightly different one well it's both to the... high and low at the same time right so we're just talking about on a, on, a, on a metaphysical level if things are you know all in equilibrium you know at the same time that gives that personal freedom that radical freedom mm-hmm. attitude to be dealing with your sense from your own perspective of honor on a personal level. And that's one thing we find throughout, um, you know, Howard's stories is, as I was saying earlier, he is such an individualist, not because he's not philosophical or spiritual, but because he is. Right. And so, you know, it's it would be easy to sit there and say, well, you know, look at, uh, you know, the, the the guy over here in this gang who won't snitch because snitching is bad. Yeah, okay, you might have most people at a very low level of thought. It's like he needs to think on a, on a more global scale, a more societal scale in terms of responsibility and et cetera. And that may be true of most of the situations where you'd see this. But now we've got a paradox of somebody who approaches life in terms of a personal sense of their perspective and and even if it may shift of what honor is or isn't and what they'll do with that radical freedom not because they're shallow because they've gone deeper than the people who said go deep and mm-hmm. so there's 
you 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 don't find people fighting for great crusades or causes um, of any kind in you know uh, Howard's main protagonists. Um, they may be in service of some, sure, but there is a cynicism of a way, and it's not that nihilistic cynicism. It's the you know uh, existential end of radical freedom that it still comes down to what I choose, and ultimately. In the cosmic sense, there's no right or wrong that I am beholden to. I simply have to deal with it on my level and live with it. I love it. That's beautiful. Now, since we're tossing quotes, let's dig some more. Because again, otherwise we can go on uh, talking more in the abstract. And unless you guys have heard the stories, it's like, well, I'm glad I'm listening to these guys talk about crap I haven't read and I don't know what we're talking about so you know by throwing quotes out there is a way to reel those of you guys who haven't had direct experience in because that way you can make up your own mind and not you know maybe you dig it maybe you don't but at least you hear it this is the kind of thing that I I should probably tell it to I think when like Isabella is running around the house and I'm chasing her or we're playing hide and seek I plan to use this line on her next because it seems appropriate as she's running away and we are giggling and stuff, I will quote from uh, this story. Um, I believe it's called the, the Frost Giant's Daughter, I think. Mm -hmm. That's the title. You cannot escape me, he roared. Lead me into a trap and I'll pile the heads of your kinsmen at your feet. Hide from me and I'll tear apart the mountains to find you. I'll follow you to hell. So Isabella be warned. That's the <laughs> line that I'm going to be used next for if we're chasing each other around the house. Here's one I'd like to share from uh, my favorite Howard story of all, which is, you know, I, I really enjoyed mm -hmm. uh, the Conan stories, still do, but a very Conan-like character, but often told in a more fable-like uh, tone is a, a king from an earlier time called Call. Mm -hmm. And this story, The Mirrors of Tizum Thun, I've used in a lot of uh, 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 teaching classes. Another bad movie, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Like... Well, here's the irony is that is that so much of the cull stories with Thulsa Doom and so on was adapted to the Conan to movie. To the Conan one, right. And, and in defense of the time and Milius as well, you know, nobody anticipated or even thought we would see more than one Conan movie. And Milius himself wouldn't have cared if he did because he was going to blow his whole load in one, you know, one movie. Um, but so a lot of the cull elements were taken. And then ironically... The uh, a lot of the elements in the Cull movie were from a script that was supposed to be for another or, Conan right. movie. So you know, who was in the Cull movie? Who started? Uh, Kevin Sorbo. Oh, Kevin Sorbo. And yeah. uh, I think there was only one redeeming quality to the Cull movie. Wasn't there? Was it Tia Carrera? In yeah. The yeah. God damn, she was hot. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. She so there, remember. you know, here and there, there were scenes where very few, but there were scenes where you go, "Oh, that scene was okay," but God, this movie sucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but sorry, in any case, <laughs> and you're saying call, call, not crawl, because no, right. another really horrible. Yeah, movie. crawl was a really bad movie. Well, so was call, but but the character of call, um, kind of a Conan precursor. Uh, there were only a couple, two or th two or three story, call stories published in Howard's lifetime. And he had maybe a half a dozen others that he had written that were never published, but they are more philosophical and more fabulish, and so I, I have a tendency to really like those. And and Cole's right hand man is a uh, uh, a Pict uh, by the name of Bruel, which is funny too because Cole again Cole himself is Atlantean, but the Atlanteans are barbarians, and he's 
he was nevertheless driven from his tribe um, and ends up in civilization. And actually, really good story where he's driven from his tribe. He's a young man, and for an alleged crime, uh, a woman is being burned at the stake. And he, probably knowing he can't save her, but he gives her a clean death by throwing his knife uh, and, and killing her so she won't suffer horribly as she dies and so runs afoul of his own tribe so this is another common thing that you see in, in howard is that you know it's uh um even among your own people you don't fit um so and no good deed goes unpunished yeah but so it's not exactly an exaltation of all things barbarian you know it's a it's a it's still an individualistic sort of thing so anyway call ends up through all these adventures as king of volusia and Brule, the picks are Brule is his best friend, and when they first meet, there's animosity because the Atlanteans and the picks are natural enemies. But then they end up, you know, this this pair, and and Brule saves his life on more than one occasion. And uh, so anyway, Cull is brooding on his throne because, you know, kind of like various kings, kind of like Caesar. It's like wait, I've carved order out of chaos but order itself it's the carving that is the is the passion not the order itself which is stifling that's and, what i plan and his to daughter's do. dating a pig as well so <laughs> that's spoiled. he doesn't have a daughter unfortunately but uh, but, but uh but that's one of my life's goals is to be brooding on a throne that sounds yeah. like fun bring more wine yeah <laughs> that but was so, a game of thrones of you but so here's the quote you know because uh, you know call is brooding and brule says well you know, Brule went forth in a doubtful mood, leaving the king brooding on his throne. Then Decal stole a girl of the court and whispered, Great king, seek to Zun Thun, the wizard. The secrets of life and death are his, and the stars in the sky, the lands beneath the seas. Cull looked at the girl. Fine gold was her hair, and her violet eyes were strange. She was beautiful, but her beauty meant little to Cull. To Zun Thun, he repeated, who is he? A wizard of the elder race. He lives here in Volusia, by the lake of visions in the house of a thousand mirrors. All things are known to him, Lord King. He speaks with the dead and holds converse with the demons of the lost lands. Color rose. I will seek out this mummer, but no word of my going, do you hear? I am your slave, my lord. And she sank to her knees meekly, but the smile of her scarlet mouth was cunning behind Cull's back. Cull came to the house of Tizun Thun beside the Lake of Visions. Wide and blue stretched the waters of the lake, and many a fine palace rose upon its banks. Many swan-winged pleasure boats drifted lazily upon its hazy surface, and evermore there came the sound of soft music. Tall and spacious but unpretentious rose the House of a Thousand Mirrors. The great doors stood open, and Cull ascended the broad stair and entered and announced. There, in a great chamber, whose walls were of mirrors, he came upon Tizun Thun, the wizard. The man was as ancient as the hills of Zalgara, like wrinkled leather was his skin, but his cold gray eyes were sparks of sword steel. Kalavolusha, my house is yours, said he, bowing with an old-time courtliness and motioning Kull to a throne-like chair. You are a wizard, I have heard, said Kull bluntly, resting his chin upon his hand and fixing his somber eyes upon the man's face. Can you do wonders? The man stretched forth his hand, his fingers opened and closed like a bird's claws. Is that not a wonder, that this blind flesh obeys the thoughts of my, my mind? 
I walk, I breathe, I speak. Are they not all wonders? Cull meditated a while and spoke. Can you summon up demons? Aye, I can summon up a demon more savage than any in Ghostland by smiting you in the face. Cull started, then nodded. But the dead, can you speak to the dead? I talk with the dead always as I am talking now. Death begins with birth, and each man begins to die when he is born. Even now you are dead, King Cull, because you were born. But you are older than men become. Do wizards never die? Men die when their time comes. No sooner, nor later. Mine has not yet come. Cull turned these answers over in his mind. Then it would seem that the greatest wizard of Volusia is no more than an ordinary man, and I have been duped into coming here. Tazun Thun shook his head. Men are but men, and the greatest men are they who soonest learn the simplest things. Nay, look into my mirrors, Cull. Mirrors are the world, Cull. Gaze into my mirrors and be wise. Check that out. <laughs> Did you like... Primarily, like, what are your favorites? Are you like, you did the Conan stories? Do you did the Cole stories? Do you did these boxing stories? Because again, today we're focusing more on Conan, but you know, the guy clearly wrote a lot. You know, it's over the years, it's become quite a wide range. And, uh, um, you know, in general, the best of the, I mean, the best of the Cole stories are my favorite, mm -hmm. but it really does. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a mix of whatever on that kind of more, philosophical or mm -hmm. deeper level that I see it commonly in Howard when he was at his best. So yeah, it's, it's become a wide range. There's all, all over. Huh? Mm -hmm. There's um, one of my favorites beside the ones we mentioned already, uh, beyond the black river. Mm -hmm. That's a hell of a beautiful story. There's one that's fitting actually for a discussion that I'm planning to have on uh, an episode, or we may have had already by now, because I don't know the order in which we'll release episodes, <laughs> but one regarding science and the relationship with science and so on there's a pretty cool quote in beyond black river that said uh, where conan says civilized men laugh but no one can tell me how zogarasag can call pythons and tigers and leopards out of the wilderness and make them do his bidding they would say it is a lie if they dared that's the way with civilized men when they can't explain something but they're half-baked science they refuse to believe it I love that line, when they can't explain something by their half-baked science, they refuse to believe it. There's something to that about the arrogance of, uh, you know, when science is torn into its own dogma, and unless it fits within certain specific parameters, then it's not happening, it's not real, it must mm. not be. And instead there's sort of this embracing of the mystery of it all, without even trying to make sense of it on Conan's part, that I dig considerably more. So that's uh, pretty fun. And there's another quote, I think it's from a different story, but I can't remember where this one is from. Let's say some, well, this is actually, you know, testosterone is oozing out of this quote, but it says, someday when all your civilization and science are likewise swept away, your kind will pray for a man with a sword. Mm -hmm. Which, well, and that, that second part really gets it. You know, it's funny too, because, um, as a science, uh, primarily a science teacher over the years, mm -hmm. as being a scientist, as being, you know, part of the uh, general culture of skeptics, you know, it's like Howard wouldn't seem to fit that, but he is a 
he is a down-to-earth one. He is a visceral and a pragmatic one. And, and I agree. One of the things that, that comes out then is not the, the minutia. Mm-hmm. What it comes out is basically a phenomenological approach. And Carl Sagan was actually really good with this. He said, you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Mm-hmm. You know, what it really comes down to is, is this phenomena powerful enough and reproducible enough that you can claim it? And then then we can get into the what's and the why's and wherefores. But so much is bogged down in questions of is this possible or what, you know, and, and a lot of it. You know, I'll use a, a really good example, which is funny because I love horror movies um, when they're really good. But kind of like what I did with fantasy and, and, and uh, Conan-like characters, God, I swear I slogged through, you know, nine horror movies that suck just to find the one that's half decent. And, you know, I sit there and I go, Here, I sit there and tell people, okay, why, why are you so afraid of a ghost? I mean, I, I actually do quote-unquote ghost hunting never had actually happened but i go stay in these places and i research you know it's like i was at the amargosa hotel all all by myself all night you know it's like talking to my brother on the phone yeah nothing happening yet you know um but so it's like why are you guys so scared i mean look we got something here that if it's operating at full power is struggling to kind of move your glass across the table or throw it at you you know what? Give me. I mean, a polar bear. You know, it's like an asteroid. Those those scare me. <laughs> but the, you know, here, and so what it really is is not a presupposition about, you know, what may or may not be there. But say, okay, well, either it's not there, or by the way, if it is, it is pretty lame ass weak. You know, <laughs> uh, so which is funny actually, because in the Conan stories, he's pretty much unafraid of anything tangible. Yep. But you always get there's that hair on his back rising anytime there's anything that does not have a body. Exactly. Partially he's, he's... because anything that doesn't have a body, how the hell do you kill it in Conan's mind? That's the number one question. Right. There's a but court... he never freezes with that too. That's the funny thing. No, he thing. doesn't. You know, he he has the he has the instinctive response. Yeah. And it's honest, but. You know, it does come back around to, you know, versions of the predator quote, you know, if it bleeds, I can kill it. Exactly. You know, kind exactly. of thing. <laughs> yeah, that would, that's very Howard-like yeah. right there. There's um, another one. I don't remember what story this one is from where it says, he granted with satisfaction. The feel of the hilt cheered him and gave him a glow of confidence. Whatever webs of conspiracy were drawn about him, whatever trickery and treachery ensnared him, this knife was real. The great muscles of his right arm swelled in anticipation of murderous blows. Yep. There's that element of, yeah, the what's tangible, what's right there, what's, uh, you know, jug of red wine, sword, uh, something very here and now that you can put your finger on. In many ways, it's sort of the antidote to getting lost in sort of this existential reflection that Howard is very prone to, and anybody who's smart would be very prone to to some degree bringing it back to a level that you have control on with what's right in front of you that or you, you can you might as well try you know the the, yeah. the the good example would be you know you know we're, we're in this room and uh happen to have a you know uh like an ar rifle on hand and a werewolf starts breaking down the wall you know Is it's, it it's not a, it's, it's right. not yeah it's like is it going to work? I don't know, but I might as well try something. Yeah. And maybe it doesn't kill him, but it slows him down. Or, what, you know, this sort of thing where I'm not presupp- 
presupposing that this can't exist and in denial. I'm not presupposing the mythology either. Go, oh, it's not silver. I can't do anything. You know, it's it's literally a. I might go down fighting. I might not. But for all pragmatic, practical levels, might as well throw this out there. Yeah, there's actually a story there. I forgot with the title again, where he's uh, he's being chased by these like super powerful thing that you cannot kill that's like and uh you know there's only a door now separating him from this thing he has already tried cutting him in every way it doesn't work and he knows that now is a matter of time before the door is gonna come crumbling down this creature come in and there's and his plan is you know i'm gonna go out in one last swing swinging my sword not because there's any use but that's because there's his instinct is Mm -hmm. to go down while trying to strike one last blow and it's funny because when he realized that thing there's an element of complete peace that come yes. upon him. You know, he's expecting to die in about three minutes. And there's a moment there where he's like, okay, you know, there's nothing to struggle. There's no nothing to figure out. He's, I know my part. He knows his part. We're going to play it. There's an element of uh, stoicism. And mm-hmm. by the way, it's pretty funny because in the course of, as he's waiting there for death to come crashing through the door, He's checking out the woman that's right next to him, hiding with him in that thing. And like he spent the next three minutes just deeply appreciating every curve in her body and just checking her out and feeling this life is good. And yeah. yeah, it's got to end in about three minutes. But damn, this is, that's very much sort of the it's the Conan equivalent of the strawberry zen story that we mentioned multiple times on the podcast so i won't go over it again or the you know hamlet before the 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 last duel where it says you know if it's not now it's to come if it's to come it's not you know right it's a uh the readiness is all you know Mm -hmm. is uh because hey you know uh, not to be trite with it but it's like do you plan to live forever you know this was going to happen right someday Reported in tons of war stories, too. I think a lot of them would put that sort of frame of mind together. With, Might as well give my best because this is probably it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this was and, always an easier going way to, to deal with it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's coming anyway. So. Yeah. Might as well. No, exactly. And that's the there's an element there of that. I mean, in many ways, this is stoicism, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Conan that's uh, stoic philosophy at work right there. And there's even that sort of Nietzschean yes to life where you just, the whole Nietzsche paradox was always the, what if you were to live, relive your life forever and ever, every single second of it, junior I included, you know, all the good (laughs) moments, all the bad moments, would you say yes to reliving your life over and over if you have the option compared to nothingness, you know? And so there's that element that clearly everybody in their life has a ton of moments that you don't want to relive that are ugly, that are stupid, that you feel like, oh man, not that. But if you are able to say yes, means that there's an acceptance of life as a whole that it doesn't make you smarter or more. It's not a a matter of maybe a very good reason why you don't want to relive your life. You know, maybe that's, but there's an element of uh, that ability to say yes to the totality of life, ugly stuff, beauty, everything rolled together that is not necessarily superior to people who can't but there's it definitely says something about your approach to existence and it's powerful that's where it is so i sort of dig this uh conan as a stoic philosopher i uh, i enjoy quite a bit there's actually an article that you had sent me uh there were these guys uh, miller and burke that were exchanging ideas mm-hmm. back and forth regarding uh 
you know they were saying now uh, some people say that our glorified violence and instead other people say no not at all you know it is uh, in some sense there is more this coming to terms this grappling with the impermanence of it all the fact that no matter how amazing your achievements is no matter how great of a warrior you are you are a speck of dust in a giant universe on one hand there's not taking yourself too seriously mm -hmm. and then on the other hand there is that you know here and now let's enjoy it for this second yeah which... it was uh, you know a lot of his letters to hp lovecraft were back and forth because lovecraft himself was a really strange bird um but basically very much an east coast um you know uh, slim totally cerebral in a very whacked out way intellectual um and you know how uh, you know was really promoting that while howard was you know, saying, well, wait a minute, I, I, I believe in physicality and physical culture, but I don't exalt it above the mental. It was, and you often hear in these letters him very clearly saying, you know, he's taking a perspective. It's not a cosmic perspective. It's not a universal perspective. It's simply a viable perspective. And that's a tough thing, um, I think, has always been for human beings maybe especially nowadays, which is that, you know, it's it's tough to have that, to, to give yourself the license for your own personal directiveness of right and wrong, and at the same time on a cosmic level, know that there is no such thing. Right. Till I crack the portal and bring the thousand-eyed being across. <laughs> <laughs> from that's the fifth dimension, that's what... H.P. Lovecraft would tell you. Yeah. Yep. In 20,000 torturous words to get there. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, Holy he, he, he never had any compelling characters to me. It was like, I, I really tried. There's a couple stories of Lovecraft that I liked and used, and I'm thankfully short. But I really couldn't get into Lovecraft. No, <laughs> me neither. I've tried Not to. my thing. I know you're supposed to appreciate it. And, and they were going to do in the Mouth of Madness, in uh, Mountains of Madness. Yeah. But I don't think they could figure it all out. It was just too weird. Yeah. How do you do the geometrical fortresses and all that anyway? What do you think of the whole, um, the typical, uh, very nerdy, liberal, um, more critique of heroic fantasy in general, Howard or Conan stories in specific, of Milius, of all of this stuff, seeing all these as basically fascist mythology? seeing all these as very right-wing uh, glorification of violence fascism all of that kind of stuff compared to their and rand books <laughs> <laughs> well even you know it's funny too because it's like i am no way a fan <laughs> at all of Anne rand uh and i slog through the long books but like her short book anthem see you know it's funny because totally mixed background in myself and and, and very multicultural my my for lack of a better term, white portion is is Ukrainian, Eastern European, and, and what my folks and my family were through. And, you know, I can't ascribe to Ayn Rand's philosophy, but if you went through what people did with the communists, you can see where it developed, you know. Um, and so it, it, it surprises people to go, no, there's, there's things of value in there, even if you have to, you know, suck it up about, the things that get to you that you disagree with or even offend you and um, for that matter i mean in our too we have mm -hmm. been going back and forth in the last few days mentioning there is one thing that we didn't mention that is 
pretty damn disturbing when you read it today mm-hmm. the um, there are a lot of uh, disturbing racial references within mm-hmm. Howard and people you know argue forever about what exactly does it mean does it mean he was like the craziest racist of them all does it mean he was just a product of his times does it mean you know who cares that's not the point in any way but still it's hard to not at some point get a moment where you go whoa what mm-hmm. the hell was that for one i mean even purely in terms of aesthetic if i read one more line of Howard in which a woman is described as pale ivory arms and whatever i'm just gonna throw the conan books <laughs> out because i mean not that there's again you know you are into pale women good for you but jesus fucking christ a change for a you know once yeah. in a while something more he didn't have any united colors of benetton in town back then to no exactly the and, and there is and again you know the dude grew up in the what was it he was an adult during the 1920s in texas mm-hmm. okay you can get a sense of the context and it does show up here and there so again speaking of being able to set and that's part of the problem of exactly what you were saying of being able to separate aspects mm-hmm. if you find I can, I mean, take Nietzsche. I love Nietzsche, mm-hmm. but there are parts that are where he's just fucking crazy yeah. and where he's just way off the deep end or he's saying stuff that's really like his all the stuff about women is like, Friedrich, had you got them laid a little more <laughs> and have yeah. somebody, he would have been so much happier and nicer human being on a lot of levels. Does that mean that because he says some stupid shit about women, I have to throw everything out? Or does it mean that I have to defend the stuff he says about women and try to justify it in some weird ways? Like, no, he has 70% of his stuff is awesome, mm-hmm. 20 so-so, and 10% is just flat out stupid and distasteful and I would have a problem with. Who cares? I don't have to marry the guy. You know, yeah. it's not that I have to embrace from A to Z everything about him. Is I'll take the good mm-hmm. and I'll look at the bad and say, ah, pfft bad idea there Friedrich that was crap absolutely same thing with Howard there are some things that I'm like eh, that really is not my thing and you have to you know what, what Howard was actually good at um, was engagement most of the time with the other he especially you know in the, in the whole racial end mm-hmm. of things you know for example like there's somebody who has uh, great fantasy author Charles Saunders who african-american has dealt struggled with this issue and said you know um well howard is on the moderate end of of you know the spectrum of of race but we still you know need to appreciate what's here and so on it was it was blacks that howard struggled with the most and there really isn't a lot of stuff per se but you know given his own context you know this is where you you try to understand the man even as he was not very good about that with uh with african americans or or africans but he was actually with a lot of other races and particularly native americans when he when he died he wanted to create this long epic that looked at things both from the native american and the settler perspective and saw that this was maybe an irreconcilable conflict but could see from the other's person he has this, this right. great poem called the uh, kiowa's tale about uh, a kiowa warrior who's going to kill this man in revenge and is about to shoot him you know about to, with a with his arrow when he sees the man's woman whether it's a wife or whatever come out of the cabin and laugh and then have a moment and spares him you know so you know with with howard it's not very good revenge 
<laughs> yeah. Now, Howard also had some stories that when you look when you hear the language can be very disturbing and then you look deeper and Saunders describes this pretty well too like uh, where there is a lot of both fear and white fear and white guilt about revenge being taken by African Americans using voodoo or using magic or so on and you can see that wow this is this is part of the mix which in its own way is is something that in a very kind of politically correct progressive way we just don't avoid we just avoid the issue where Howard's sitting uh, you know they have a reason to be upset he never defended slavery he didn't even defend the, the south in the civil war he wasn't from the plantation group and it was almost like a uh, it's like a lot of his characters and himself well you know when the shit flies I have to be with my people but really they suck too you know as I was saying with Cole being <laughs> yeah. driven out and and, and and these sorts of things and so Howard himself, to put it in a nutshell, uh, I believe was, and this is actually pretty common for his time, a segregationist in the sense that there's too much animosity here, too much trouble as a result of all this, and we're better off, you know, interacting, but otherwise, you know, them keeping themselves, us keeping ourselves. And yes, I, I mean, if you ask me, I believe that's grossly wrong. But, you know, how many people remember that George Wallace felt that way and then Jackie 20 Robinson years later, everything. well, 20 years later, renounced it, yeah. you know, even by the time he was shot. And he would turn out to be, you know, the governor that was, um, you know, appointing African-Americans at a rate we've never seen before under his administration. And so this this idea of non-engagement that I can throw this label out there to invalidate somebody and especially ostracize them. And here's what's funny, too. One thing, you know, on a, on a little bit of a political soapbox that, that I've been bugging me lately is that, you know, the use of shame from a progressive end. And I'm very overall very liberal, very progressive. But I sit there and I go, well, wait a minute. You know, and as an educator, I know this as well. It's not like you never use shame, but it's not a very effective tool. And progressives themselves should know this. You know, it's like if, if you're a woman going, well slut shaming or body shaming I, i'm not going to knuckle under to this well good you know that a person can't be broken by this even if you're in the non-privileged category but what makes you think that the the bb gun the weapon that doesn't work on you is going to work on somebody who's in an even more privileged position you know it's uh it, it's it throws me this idea of non-engagement and you know I think part of it too is as an educator, kids come through generation after generation and I have to deal with them even if they have the stupid question. You know, if a kid... Oh, I thought there were no stupid questions. <laughs> Wait a minute. Well, you know... Obviously it, there are. Yeah. But if a kid comes in and, and a lot of them are understandably stupid, you know, if you throw something out of a curved tube, its trajectory once it exits the tube is straight. But our intuitive notions, probably evolutionarily speaking, is that it's going to keep on a curved trajectory. That's physics that we've known and known for a long time, but you have to keep constantly teaching it. Because as frustrating as it is for society not to have grabbed this, everybody coming through, if they're young or if they just haven't been exposed to this, are going to ask that stupid question because it's a the reasoning is reasonable even if it's still a stupid question. So I think in society, 
on the progressive end, it's like, why aren't we over this yet? Why are there people still asking the stupid question of if there's a, you know, uh, African-American student uh, group and there's a Chicano student group, why can't there be a white student group? And we could go over a lot of reasons why there shouldn't be. But you know what? Every generation, you're going to have to answer that question because even though the reasoning is flawed, it's a reasoning that makes its own backward sense in the person that needs to be corrected. So labeling people and ostracizing them is not the engagement. You know, not only did we have a George Wallace that had to grow out of his segregationist ideas back then, we still have that because, you know, somebody will look at a charter school and say, well, this is focusing on African-American students, so you're already segregating. Why would we have segregation? And you have to explain it again and 50 years from now for that next generation somebody's going to have to explain it again and that's just you know talking about things being cyclical in that metaphysical sense this is part of life um so you know unfortunately um you know howard never lived long enough right to be engaged on this but as we engage his work simply saying oh well obviously we're going to label the guy he was a racist and he was which frankly most people are in one form or another that's that's not where the discussion ends it's where it starts all right what type of racist are you what you know is reasonable in terms of where you came from and what isn't you know that's going to happen every generation every person over and over and just say and we can throw a label on somebody and now invalidate everything they did or said one of the things that's complicated is that it's um typically the standard racists tend to be people who glorify civilization as opposed to those other uncivilized people of that such and such scholar and it's funny because one running theme throughout Howard is that he's not, at least Conan character, he's not particularly, like one of his best, the best writing moments throughout Howard in almost every story are regularly when he compares Conan to civilized people mm-hmm. and clearly not in a flattering terms towards civilized people. Yeah. There's, a, I'm just going to go through a few just because they are pretty cool quotes from various stories. One, there's... Um, um, the barbarian's eyes were smoldering with fires that never lit the eyes of men bred to the ideas of civilization. In that instant he was all wild and had forgotten the man at his sides. In his bar- burning gaze, Baltus glimpsed and vaguely recognized pristine images and half-embodied memories, shadows from life's dawn, forgotten and, rep- and repudiated by sophisticated races, ancient primeval phantoms, unnamed and nameless. In another part, he says, he was concerned only with the naked fundamentals of life, the warm intimacies of small, kindly things, the sentiments and delicious trivialities that make up so much of civilized men's lives were meaningless to him. In another one, um, there was a a wolfishness, which is a beautiful (laughs) term. I'll use the term wolfishness. There was a wolfishness about this warrior, the marked barbarian, and uh, the eyes of no civilized man however wild or criminal ever blaze with such a fire you know there's the mm-hmm. idea of the eyes what you see that fire in the eyes that he has and most civilized people do not seem to possess keep coming up over and over exactly and in, in his letters with lovecraft which i was just reading a lot more last night he also makes it clear again that he doesn't believe 
the barbarian is better either mm-hmm. it's that he understands that perspective and everybody is in their own way just as good but different and in fact uh you know a little little quote from one of the letters to lovecraft um goes here that uh um let's see here you say i refuse to accept the basic standards of human development that is hardly correct it would be more appropriate to say that i have questioned some of your conclusions as to what constitutes the criterion of human development you apparently feel that I have in disagreeing with some of your ideas denied the whole system of human valuation, that I lump everything into a chaotic jumble in which there is neither superior nor superiority nor inferiority. In other words, the cultural relativism. In the first place, considering it from a cosmic sense, considering the cosmos as a whole, I'm convinced that things are a meaningless jumble, that a caterpillar is as important as a man, that a baboon is as significant as an artist, and that means absolutely nothing to the universe whether a man is an imbecile or a genius. Yet at the same time, I recognize the vital importance of a scale of value so far as human affairs are concerned in the relation of the human to other humans. As far as human preference goes, my every action reflects my recognition of such a scale, yet it certainly isn't a simple scale. So in other words, that cosmic level of equilibrium, and yet I am a contracted being, I'm a particular being, I have a particular perspective, both as a human compared to other creatures, and as a particular human that values, say, the frontier life over, you know, settled civilization. And so, you know, the irony is then, yeah, uh, to, you know, unfortunately, very, fortunately, to very large degrees with most cultures, Howard was, and his other letters and his stories show it, especially to Asians and to Native Americans, able to both see the other and appreciate them for what they are, not a mm-hmm. projection of, you know, this is, again, a common liberal problem. Oh, they're just like us, but I expect their norms and everything. Oh, wait, they're not like us, you know, kind of thing, which drives, drives them nuts. Howard's main racist problem was whether lack of exposure or education specifically when it came to blacks and that's Texas why I have, 1920s yeah and that's why you know sadly i wish she had lived longer and had been able to have that exposure but you know um that's why it's a mixed bag was he a racist yes now that just starts the conversation what kind was he what comes from that and then just the fact that we understand that means that we can take from him what we want and we can grow beyond him what he never had a chance to the way we want and whereas the racist thing is yeah there's something definitely disturbing in his writings and there's no way to make it pretty because it's not Mm -hmm. um there are the other one the one that i kind of brought up earlier in relation to this cult of violence this uh, conan as this fascist thing heroic fantasy as this fascist thing to me is completely missing the a is not knowing what fascism means mm-hmm. and b missing the point of what all of this stuff is about because in many ways the whole conan thing is highly individualistic mm-hmm. in a way that fascism like any regime built around this strong authoritarian state is not exactly nietzsche has the same problem you know, precisely nietzsche, you know it's like nietzsche presaged nazism it's like, no he didn't he would have despised the nazis yeah. because they were a herd mentality yep and he was an individualist exactly this is more like anarchist individualism mm-hmm. if you want to label it anything more than anything else there's uh, 
you know, the Conanel is really, as we saw from the judge quote earlier, he has very little respect for authority as such. Mm -hmm. Respect has to be earned. He's very much, uh, he really does not, he's not made to obey the laws of any state. He's not made to fit within a machine. He's very much this uh, full-on wild individual with all the quirks that this entails. And so I find always the whole critique of, uh, you know, the heroic fantasies being right-wing as really being dumb. It's something well, it that conflates. just doesn't, uh, even because it's like, what is, you know, it's right-wing to be strong. That's what's right-wing. Well, that's like, it. It conflates a lot of things. And so, for example, just, you know, where we have two issues that a lot of people conflate but are not necessarily connected is the racism angle and then the relationship to uh, you know physicality or strength mm -hmm. or power in fact one of the most racist types of things out there is kind of like lovecraft the very patrician you know typical cerebral highly educated east coast nerd thing and looking down upon say an african-american athlete you know um they don't necessarily go together you know there's no necessary connection between physical strength or virility and other aspects of either being right wing or left wing. Right, precisely. You know? That's where attaching label to things is always a very bad idea because you tend to do violence to what actual reality in front of you is mm -hmm. and try to make it fit. Now, well, that's the first step of any genocide is labeling. Yep, yes. big time. That's yes. a fact. Now, one thing that, and we're going to close soon since we're running long, but one thing that um, I remember when we had Mike V on, he said uh, that by the time he was 14 years old, he had decided that whatever he would do in life, he would do it with the intensity that Black Flag played. He was <laughs> like, if I ended up flipping burgers for a living, I would do it the way Black Flag would do it. I have the same exact feeling with the Conan stories. You know, to me, it's like, it doesn't matter what you do, it's that intensity that I dig and love. Now, before we wrap, any last word you wanted to throw out there? Um, Some dominoes, by the way. Any <laughs> last words? Um, you know, I I don't have anything popping to mind right now. <laughs> I would love to know where your first uh, Howard book came from. Was it sitting on a stack somewhere? Was yours in Italian? Yeah, I actually read completely in Italian until for a long time before I read it in yeah, English. Yeah, mine was uh, it was from Bar uh, B. Dalton Bookstore. You know, I was uh, I was again just really big into Marvel comics, and I didn't start out with the comics Conan, but I was familiar that he existed. Right. And then I heard that well, there's these stories, and I remember kind of seeing it on the bookshelf at the at the bookstore and going, oh, I'll grab them and give them a try. You know, well, uh, roll out with. One quote. Um, I can't remember, she murmured. Everything is dim and misty. It doesn't matter. You are no dream. You are strong. Let us live while we can. Love me. I dig that. That's a way to do things. No kissing. <laughs> Rich, come on here. Right. Now that we're done, let me come a little closer. Somebody get the lights, please. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me, guys. Yeah, I hope. Let me live deep while I can. Now, see, that was only 87% completely nerdy. That wasn't bad at all. Screw you.
Uh, it was wa- great. He was. I actually was thinking of doing a podcast that was going to be both about Conan and EQ, Couldn't since we're there. both fans of both. Turns out, no, so we'll have to get uh, Robert to come back another time to do a special EQ episode on a different occasion, because we nerded out about Conan for long enough. <laughs> so that was that. But uh, yeah, man, always fun to talk about this stuff. The, um, what else do I want to throw out there? Our Amazon link. If you guys shop on Amazon, please use it. That would be really sweet. Doesn't cost you a cent more and it helps the podcast. So we're always deeply appreciative of this. Affiliate sponsors, if you ever think that maybe audiobooks you want to give it a try, try through our link to Audible. And, uh, you know, it's free for you for a month. You just got to try it out. You got a free audiobook. See if you like it. If you like it, great. If not, discontinue. And it still works out for us. And you got to check it out. Uh, Coracao Chocolate. They are a whole range of healthy chocolate, which does not sound... It may sound like I'm saying crappy chocolate. It's not. It's actually really good chocolate, but with uh, a special healthy twist to it, which is always nice. You can be sin-free when you indulge. That'll be the day. Yeah, that's always good stuff. Uh, Because we recorded back-to-back episode, we do not have a list of donations of people who donated, but we appreciate those of you guys who do, those of you guys who think of doing, those of you guys who dream of doing, those of you guys who just leave a review on uh, iTunes. Any effort is always appreciated. You tell your friends about us. That would be the most important one. Just tell your friends or tell your family. There's yeah. there's fifteen to twenty thousand of you that listen to each episode. Yep. Go tell somebody if uh, you like it. What the hell if you even just hate it. Tell them. Absolutely. That's the more it grows, the easier it will be to get sp- more sponsorship to make the whole thing more viable. So yes, by all means, please help out. Uh, thank you to Desi House for the music. And are we missing anything? Kiva status? Kiva is always, Kiva continues to grow. It's incredible. You guys really do respond to that. And, uh, you know, there's, there's there's over 115 of your fellow Drunken Taoist listeners that are members with 500 plus loans out. Come on and join. It's, uh, you know, it is getting close to Christmas. So if you have like a spoiled nephew that could really learn a little lesson, get him a Kiva card and send it to him. You can print it out on your printer. You can send him a little actual plastic card. There's a lot of ways to do it. It's right there on the website. It makes a lot of sense. And have that little spoiled bastard help somebody, you know, buy a cow. (laughs) Instead of another fucking Nintendo game for a little dick who doesn't deserve it. So that's the moral of the story today. Buy a cow. Yeah. And hug more. Yes. That's what happens when you talk about Conan long enough. Yes. Cool, man. You guys have a wonderful day. And so ends another awesome episode of the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Be sure to keep your ears peeled for another mind-expanding episode coming soon. We'll be tweeting you as soon as they come out. You can keep track of Daniel at dbolelli. That's D-B-O-L-E-L-L-I. And you can find me on Twitter at Richimon1. That's R-I-C-H-I-M-O-N, the numeral one. See y'all soon.
che in questo caso, in questo caso le provvidenze di Dio. Duncan showed you the way, eh? Oh man, isn't that scary to think? Nice. So don't kill people, do that instead. <laughs> this was great, it's fucking awesome. And I love this conversation. That's Get back I... to work!